This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Hey, it's Andrew Helmich here from PhotoBizX, and this is episode 28 of the Photography Experiment Podcast. And today's special guest, Dan Westergren, shares his experiences of working for National Geographic, shooting as a commercial travel photographer for the National Geographic Traveler magazine, and what it's like working for himself as a photographer now that magazines have all but died off. And I'm happy to say today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by USB Memory Direct. They are the ones making this episode possible. And if you are looking to give your clients something more than a link to an online gallery of the work you created for them, if you want to give them something unique, something special, to remind them of you, your brand, and the experience that you delivered for them, USB Memory Direct can tailor something totally unique for you and your business. I'll share more about them later in the episode. I was recently exchanging emails with today's guest about his premium membership, and it turns out he has a love of cycling like I do. He used to race And he even spent time in South Australia from the USA while on assignment for, wait for it, National Geographic. Now, my ears pricked up and I poked a few more questions by email and he told me I'm a Nat Geo and commercial travel photographer stuck at home trying to decide how to make money without getting on an airplane. Right now, I'm putting my efforts towards commercial real estate, architectural things, but honestly, don't know what's going to work out. I keep listening to the podcast about Facebook marketing for portraits, etc., thinking maybe that's the way to go. We exchanged another email or two, and I poked a few more questions, and he said, for more than 20 years, I was director of photography for National Geographic Travel Magazine. I had an editor who let me photograph a couple of stories a year, usually adventure-type stories, And I was lucky enough to photograph stories for the magazine such as climbing Mont Blanc, the Matterhorn, and skiing to the North Pole. Now, following that exchange, I invited him on for this recording. I'm talking about Dan Westergren, and I'm wrapped to have him with us now. Dan, welcome. Hey, Andrew. It's so good to talk to you. (laughs) Mate, do you still pinch yourself when you hear an intro like that about the things that you've done in the past? I do. I do. It's, It's kind of funny. It's a hard act to live up to. For many, many years, I would tell my photographer friends who seem to have up and down lives, you know, the freelance yo-yo, and I would joke to them, well, you know, I'm addicted to my paycheck, and I have the chance to send you guys out into the field. My editor lets me go out every now and then. You know, this is working pretty well. Well, you know, the media marketplace changes, and so now here I am not working on the staff at National Geographic anymore, doing some projects for them but just trying to figure out how to make this thing all happen as a photographer. Right, yeah. I mean, the tables have have really turned, I think, not only for you, but for all of us, haven't they, this year? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a double whammy with a travel photographer because I don't even – of course, you can imagine after all those years, I have this huge Rolodex of all these photo editors at magazines and things like this, but nobody even pays money for magazines to take pictures anymore. It's like the rug was pulled out from under my profession. The one savior for me the last few years has been, you could either call it native advertising or content marketing or partnership projects. 
that's the kind of things like last year I got to go to Canada three times for National Geographic to do 10 day long stories about places. And so I did Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, well, New Brunswick last year and British Columbia. And those were my favorite kind of trips to take because I will talk to my producer at National Geographic. Since I had a background in doing the photo editing, at National Geographic, the photo editors really acted like a regular editor at most magazines. If we thought that a story was not sufficiently visual, we would tell people we didn't think we should do the story. And a lot of magazines, the photo editors are just kind of in their corner and somebody throws them a manuscript and they say, here, get pictures to go with this. So when they tell me, okay, we want to do an online piece about adventures in New Brunswick, 10 adventures in New Brunswick. Well, then I get to study New Brunswick. I pull out a map. I get to find 10 adventures. I contact all the people that I think might lead me to those adventures and then make pictures that I hope people find interesting. And then when we get back, in my case, usually I sit down and they know that I've chosen the photo subjects with a storyline. And so they don't even send a writer. They have a friend of mine who I get on the phone uh, Mary Ellen Duckett is her name, and she sort of ghostwrites for me. And I just tell her what my experience was like and why I went to a particular place. And that's just, that's what I love about it all, is to do the research into a place and then actually go take those pictures myself. It sounds amazing. And so the way you describe this right now, the role that you had or have, are you familiar with the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Of course, yes. So are you the Walter Mitty? Is that your role in National Geographic Traveler? It was a little bit different because he was more had a role that we would call film review, which were the people that actually got to look at the pictures first, but didn't have a big role in putting the magazine together. So, you know, that role was kind of funny. It was interesting that I love that movie. You know, he got to go out into the field and I've just I've seen that movie so many times. One time I was watching it and my kids... My son is 22 and my daughter's 25, and they're really into music. And then when David Bowie died, we had to listen to all the versions of Space Oddity that we could find. And there's a scene where Kristen Wiig is, appears in his dream in a bar in Greenland, and he's drinking beer out of a boot, and it's his job to get on a helicopter. So at the end of the scene, he runs out of this bar, jumps in a helicopter. And I, I was like, wait, I've been there. I've been on that exact spot. I never saw that bar. And so then I started to look around on the internet. Of course, I find out there is no bar in Greenland where you drink out of a boot. But it was in Nuuk, Greenland. And so that was one touchstone. Another touchstone from that movie was I was in a friend's loft apartment in Reykjavik, Iceland. And he was in industrial space. And I looked outside. And if you remember the scene where they're running, he skateboards down to where the volcano is going to blow up. Yes, yes. And so they jump in that little green ute, you would call it, but it's a Soviet Lada, four-wheel drive car. And as I'm looking out of my friend's window, there's a green Lada in the parking lot. No way. <laughs> and I turned around and I pointed to it and I said, that's not, and he knew what I was going to say. He said, yeah, that's, that's the car they used for the movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that you know the movie because no one in my family, including Linda, like enjoyed that movie at all. And I've watched it multiple times. I love it. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so, yeah, so is there any parallels, you know, with, with – uh, it was Ben Stiller, wasn't it, in his role in the movie and what you do? 
Not really, not really. As director of photography, my main role was I had a few photo editors that worked for me. And really the photographers, if they wanted to get work, they knew that they probably had to come up with an idea, a story idea. So Jim Richardson would call and he'd say, you know, I really think that a great travel story for your magazine would be a scotch whiskey tour. And then I would go present that. We would have monthly story meetings. And so the best part of the job was to help form what the magazine would become, you know, help with the art director and the managing editor, myself and the executive editor when he was in town. We got to plan what went in the magazine. And that's the beauty of being a photo editor or director of photography at National Geographic is that you're really shaping the magazine. You're not just finding pictures. Okay, so you had photo editors underneath you, and would it be the photo editor that's then working with the photographer, or are you working with the photographers directly and skipping over the the editor? There would be there were at three one time four photo editors, including myself, and so I would act as one of the photo editors. I'm in the mix of assigning the photographers and deciding you know what would happen. But any one story, a photo editor's job would be to work with the photographer, and of course more than half the magazine in any given time would be stock photography. And that's a huge part of the job is, you know, looking for stock photography. And, you know, when we started, of course, you had to solicit transparencies and you'd get piles and piles of FedEx packages and look through the transparencies. And then somebody had to count all those transparencies because if you lost one, it was potentially worth $1,500. And then when Corbis and Gaddy came along, of course, it got much easier to look for pictures. Um, now it's just a Tower of Babel. I'm doing some projects for them. Now they're all sourcing existing photography or stock photography. And it's like, where do you stop looking? Or if you find a picture, how can you even find who do you purchase the rights to use it from? Yeah. Let me just take you back to the days, how it was. And let's say I came to you, Dan, and I was one of the photographers. I said, look, I've got an idea for a whiskey tour in Scotland. Does that mean when you go to one of those meetings, the story meetings, and you all agree, yes, this is a great concept, is there any chance that you're going to give that job then to a photographer that, say, lives in Scotland or you feel is a better photographer than me? Or is it my idea so I get to go? At that time, we had the budget to send, you know, I had a budget to have photographed 25 stories a year. And, you know, it didn't really matter to me if the photographer came from the continent or if they came from the U.S. or or where they came from. And if it was somebody that gave an idea, but they hadn't actually worked for us, we really wouldn't look too carefully at that idea. In really extreme cases, you'd call somebody up and say, you know, you've got a great idea. You don't really have the photos to support this. Can we give you a finder's fee? And that was more likely to happen to a writer, I think, than it was to a photographer. Because we really only solicited ideas from people that had you know, it's it. It's a conundrum. Who is kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg? It, if you hadn't worked for us, we wouldn't take ideas for you. If we didn't take ideas, we couldn't work for us. It was it's a very difficult process to get to the point because, I mean, I had access to Dave Harvey, Steve McCurry. You know, you name these photographers. They were coming to me and say, "Hey, can I shoot something for Traveler?" Even though they were in real strong National Geographic magazine photographers, some of them did understand what we did at Traveler and they understood that it took a slightly different tack on the photography. And we had, you know, lots to choose from. Every now and then somebody would, you know, kind of break through. Usually, and even at National Geographic magazine, it was the same way that somebody would meet a National Geographic photographer. The photographer would 
talk to the photo editors about this upcoming photographer. That's one way that, you know, you could break through. So it's, it's almost like getting into an agency in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the difference between National Geographic magazine and National Geographic Traveler? And I know that I know the obvious answer is you guys focus on travel, but what is essentially the like is there as much prestige to say I was published in the Traveler magazine as Nat Geo? Well, no, there's not. National Geographic magazine, that was still the holy grail. That was the longest lasting magazine. Traveler magazine last they folded it about a year and a half ago. They still have an online presence, of course. Um it was 30 years. Uh, I can't remember if it was 25 or 30 years. No, 30 years they had Traveler Magazine. And it was started as a magazine for people who actually go and travel. We used to joke about our competition, Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast Traveler. And Traveler Magazine, we used to claim that our readership had the higher percentage of actual passport holders of all the <laughs> travel magazines. Right. A lot of the travel magazines, it was just, you know, armchair travel. But we tried to create a magazine that would allow you to present, you know, a story or inspire you to go out and have your own adventures. Right. Okay. So any photographer that was published or working for the Traveler magazine, was it still their desire, their ambition to get published in Nat Geo? Or it didn't matter? You were happy to be working? We were happy to be working. And some of them did. There was some crossover. Some just never were. I mean, I think that if I had to speak for the photo editors of National Geographic magazine, they probably considered us a little soft. I used to joke to the photographers. I would say, look, you need to remember that we're the happy younger sister of the family. You know, we walk on the sunny side of the street. There is something that was really important to me in trying to get the language of photography into Traveler magazine, though, was to try to not have it be like picture postcards. You know, we wanted to meet the people that were in the places. It wasn't always possible. You know, within the travel genre, everybody's going to love the pretty pictures of the mountains and the lakes and things like that. But like for me in particular, whenever I go to a place, I'm treating that destination as a background. I want to meet somebody who's there. I want somebody to take me, you know, one really successful thing that I did, one of our first online presences, it was called like Montana, where the locals go. And we talked to everybody, you know, contacted people in Montana and said, if you had the chance this weekend, where would you go? And, you know, a lot of magazines do that kind of thing. But in that case, we split it into four seasons. And of course, the editor looked at me and he said, you know, having gone to the North Pole and climbed the mountains and stuff, he's like, okay, you get to do the winter one. (laughs) And the coldest place I've ever been in my life is in Yellowstone National Park. And it was 38 degrees below zero. Wow. And that includes having gone to the North Pole. And that was the first time I'd been to Yellowstone in the winter. I had an undergraduate degree in geology, and I had spent some time in the field in Wyoming and Montana. And I had one day in Yellowstone. So to get into the park, you ride a snow coach. And then I had one night at the um, the Old Faithful Snow Lodge. And my alarm went off at you know, I think it was 6 a.m. because sunrise was going to be about 7 a.m. And I looked at the iPhone and it told me, you know, the temperature there at the nearest cell phone tower said minus 38. And all I could think was, oh, what am I? I don't really feel like going out there in the cold. And the only thing that kept me going, there was this famous photograph of bison covered with hoar frost. And oh, the guy's name is Tom. I can't remember his last name right now, but 
it's just there's posters and book covers everywhere. This picture, I thought, oh wow, it's cold enough. If I see a bison, there were bison there last night when I walked around the basin. Maybe I'll go out there and see what happens. And so I walked around in the cold for three hours, and finally I was coming back. And 50 yards from the visitor center, there's a hot spot on the ground, and there's two bison sitting there. After I'd wandered in the cold for three hours, you know, looking for bison. <laughs> Since then. For five winters, I've taught a photography workshop in the winter in Yellowstone. And that's just, that's one of my favorite weeks of the year, to take people to that place and have them experience that bitter cold, force them to get up and go for a walk with me in the morning. You know, it's just magic. Magic. I've got other <laughs> other words are coming to my mind, <laughs> not magic. <laughs> Did you call it a horror frost? H-O-A-R, horror frost. So if you're out in the real cold and it wasn't quite snowing, but the air was really moist and the wind would blow and, and the vegetation will get these ice crystals on them. Some of them could be like as big as your fingernails. And so that's a horror frost. And a lot of times it, it will settle on existing snow. So it'll be like crystals sticking up. And if a bison sat down for the night and if the conditions were just right, then that horror frost would form you know, on, on its fur. Fantastic. So it sounds to me like you were treading this really beautiful line as your role as a photo editor and director of photography, but you were also able to go out and photograph. Like that must have been a pretty unique position. Yeah, it was. It was really special. I had started working for Traveler Magazine and we got a new editor. And one of the first tasks that I had to do when he came in was I had been given the opportunity to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I wasn't sure why the previous editor let me do that. I found out a few years later why. But I had gone to North Cascades National Park in Washington State and produced a story. And I came back and I saw that more people had climbed Kilimanjaro the previous year than had visited North Cascades National Park. And I said to the story team, I said, we should do a story on climbing Kilimanjaro. That's worth it. And so they surprisingly to me, you know, approved that story. When in between that story happening, the new editor came in. So one of the first things I had to do was to show him my pictures from that trip. So as far as he was concerned, the day he met me, I was his photo editor and his photographer. <laughs> and he just, you know, let me roll with that. We started a very successful workshop. Well, we called it seminar, Traveler Photography Seminars. And we did those for eight years. We would do like 12 dates all around the country, teaming up a photographer and a photo editor or two photographers. And I got to start those out mostly with my friend, Jim Richardson. And I, you know, I've spoken about how to take better pictures to tens of thousands of people. And that was also a great experience to just get out there and to meet people that were really jazzed about traveling and taking better pictures and talking to them and us giving them our idea about how to make better pictures. And it really wasn't about, you know, did I have the right lens or did I have the right camera or something like that? It was just about, can you meet people on the road? What are you trying to do? What do you want to see? Right. I want to go a little bit deeper into that in just a minute. But so you're out there photographing these assignments and then are you doing your own photo editing or you come back and hand them to a photo editor? Because I'm imagining it's hard to be unbiased if you're looking at your own work. You know, and everybody says that. They're like, you can't edit your own work. And 
For me, it turned out not to be the case. I spend all my days looking through thousands of pictures and just like throwing them all away. And when it came to be my photographs, I just did the same thing. You have to not think about how hard was it to take a picture. Now, one of the photo editors I worked more closely with, and when I had a final edit for the story, before I showed it to anybody else, I would show it to her. And, you know, for instance, sometimes it would work out that I would go on assignment for a week and then my family would join me and I would not stop my assignment. They would just get a chance to be with me. And so I'd have a picture of my daughter when she was like six years old. And I think, well, I can't, you know, I'm I'm not going to put that in there. And so this photo editor, she would tease me. She's like, okay, these are the pictures. Now, I thought your family was with you on that story. Where's the pictures of your kids? And, you know, every now and then she'd put one of those in, but I wasn't going to put one of those photos in. I remember vividly one story. There was a writer that had sold us a story about a little town called Whitesburg, Kentucky. And his story was that he listened to the radio program of Whitesburg, Kentucky. It's in the middle of nowhere, a coal mining town. And every time he went somewhere in the world, he was primarily a food writer and wine writer. And he would be in France and he would check in his hotel room and he would open up his laptop and he would listen to WMMT, the voice of the mountains from Whitesburg, Kentucky. And finally, he decided that he had to visit this place. And so that's the story he sold us, was a story about a visit to that place. And as I was trying to decide about what the photographer, what photographer should go there, it's really not much there. And it's a dreadful place. It's in the heart of Appalachia, which is very charming, but it's not picturesque. And I talked to my art director, the creative director, he and I were very closely collaborating as well about, you know, how about this photo? What about this photo? Neither of us really held it over the other. And I went through, oh, well, I could have this photographer, or maybe there's a photographer who would go with a view camera and give it a real old timey look or something like that. And and I said, but honestly, I'm afraid that anybody I send is really, I'm setting them up for, for failure. I mean, I looked around this town on Google Earth and I, it's just really, it's really frightening. And he looked me dead in the eye and he goes, sounds to me like you should go. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you knew that was coming. (laughs) Yeah. And I went and I had to do it all in three days. And it was, it was one of my favorite stories. It was just unbelievable. So what made it so good? Was it the people that you met? Because it doesn't sound like it was a pretty place. So the music was really important there. And this is, this is actually a good story about how I think about a travel photograph. So There was more things going on. Younger people had stayed. There was a daughter of somebody who had worked at the radio station, um, decided to stay in town. And she and her husband, they opened up this bar and they finally had just gotten a liquor license. And so that was one reason to do the story now. And I went to this place. They were going to have an open mic. And everyone heard that the National Geographic photographer was there. And people came from the woodwork, musicians from all over Kentucky and Northern Virginia. I mean, you know, Western Virginia. And they, it was horrible. It was the most dreadful looking place. I put tapes some strobes to the wall. I shot pictures. The music was amazing. But there was nothing I could do to take a picture in there that was going to speak to this story about the hollers and the mountains and the music. And so the guy that was in charge of the open mic, his name was Kevin. And Kevin was a banjo player. He was an old-time banjo player, and he was about 20 years old, and all he ever wanted to be in his whole life was an old-time banjo player. And when the open mic was over, I looked at him and I said, Kevin, this was great music, but I said, I really didn't get what I wanted. I said, 
what would be perfect photograph for me? And I don't want to set this up, but I want you to think about what I'm saying. I said, if I had a photo of you carrying your banjo over your shoulder, walking down a path in the woods, I said, that's the kind of picture I need to show the place and the music together. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, we can go visit my friend George. And I said, who's George? Oh, George, he's the best banjo player in all of Kentucky. So he says, my friends and I, we're supposed to go over there and look at a guitar he has for sale. Why don't you meet us at this mile marker on this bridge? And so I parked my rental car and I got into their Jeep. And instead of driving across the bridge, they drove down into the stream and they drove (laughs) in the stream for about a hundred yards. And then they came up in a pasture and in the pasture was this cabin. And I said, why doesn't George have a bridge? Oh, George, he don't much like people. And so Kevin and his two friends, they sat down on the porch at George's cabin and they gave me this little concert that I could photograph them from every angle, looking up the holler, down the holler. I disappeared to them. They were just making music. And that's the kind of thing, you know, you meet somebody, you ask them these probing questions. In that case, I painted him a ridiculous picture that I wouldn't have shot because I would have been making the whole thing up. But I got his head into a place where he could say, oh, I know who you need to meet. Right. And that's what the beauty of it all is. I love this. This is fantastic. Let me ask you, or let me take you back to you park the car, you get out with your gear, you're about to hop into the four-wheel drive or whatever kind of car these guys have. I guess you call it a truck. And what camera gear, what gear have you got with you when you step into that car with these guys? Uh, One camera bag, a donkey bag. I always use two camera bodies because one has some flavor of a telephoto lens. One has some flavor of a wide angle lens. That goes back to my newspaper days when, you know, you're standing on the sidelines and you're always afraid that like the quarterback's going to run you over and your lens is too long. So you always have two camera bodies. And then for me, I always carry a different format. And in those days, it was the Rolleiflex. The Rolleiflex, I can't change the lens. I can't change the point of view. The only thing I can change is my view, what I'm seeing through that camera. And I have to say that that camera has led to more of my favorite pictures that I've taken. You know, the five rolls of film I shot when I shot 3,000 pictures digitally. And actually, the photo editor I mentioned to you before, when I finished the edit for this story, I had the digital photos, and then I had the medium format pictures that were taken from 17 rolls of film, which is only 12 exposures each, you know, so you're not dealing with a lot of photos. And I showed her the scans of the the film and the digital photos. And I said, I'm really worried. I can't make these two things look the same. How am I going to mix these photos together? I think I just have to throw away the Rolly pictures. And she's like, no, those are the good ones. Just don't, don't show anybody the digital photos. and so that whole story came out of those like you know 18 or 19 rolls of film wow right now that camera is um i have a fuji i'm a fuji x photographer and so now i usually carry two fuji xt3s and then i have a um what do they call it the gfxr i'm looking at it on the floor over there and it only i only have the 50 millimeter lens the f3.5 that's the only lens i have for it and so that's the camera that forces me to get my head in there's no zooming there's no switching lenses it's just 
put that camera in your hands and take a picture. And would you still take the Rolleiflex along with the Fujis? I used to take it, and then I found myself coming back with like twenty rolls of film that I didn't like. Maybe the client didn't have a budget to pay for it to processing, and I ended up with a box full of unprocessed film. It got to be really difficult. Um, before I started using the Fuji medium format, I had a Sigma camera. It's this little camera. It's a really goofy-looking thing. And those Sigma cameras would take the most beautiful black-and-white photos. And it only had approximate 40-millimeter view. You know, it's an APS-C sensor size. It's a 28-millimeter lens. It's just the same as, as the Fuji. The Fuji has the 50-millimeter is like a 40-millimeter on 35-millimeter, you know. Just that not too wide, not too long. Got it. That seems to be a real happy spot for me. Let me take you back again to this. You're photographing the banjo players with the Rollerflex, which is a 6x6 medium format camera. Am I right there? 6x6? Yes, yes. And because you're shooting for Traveler magazine, I'm assuming that you're shooting all color, color transparency. Is that right? In that case, it was color negative. So color negative. Okay, right. So, And then you would get scans. Would you print proofs to go through or would you really pick images off the scans? Um, (laughs) We used to... um... We used to send the negatives down to the lab and they would make, they had an eight by 10 and larger and they would lay the negatives in the eight by 10 and larger. And then they would make a proof sheet that was like 30 inches by 24. And then you could look at these things there. Now I just use, we just use the scans. Most places that process and scan film, the scan is really good. I sent them off to have them scanned. The place I used back then was called North Coast Color. It's somewhere in California. But those scans are this beautiful, and it is different. You know, you're like, oh, you're going to turn into digital anyway. Why bother? I can't explain it. It's just different, you know? Yeah. And then, so you're shooting color film. You're working for Nat Geo Traveler you know, as a photographer and an editor. And there you've got the parent company, Nat Geo, and you're seeing these other photographers out there shooting these dark, grungy, black and white, grainy images. Are you thinking, wow, I'd love to be doing that? Or are you thinking, I love what I get to do? I was really happy to be where I was. I mean, I think there were times when um, if we go back before my time, there was less difference. There was a director of photography for National Geographic overall, and he had a stable of photographers and they had a bunch of books they would put out each year that were actually original photography. Then there was the magazine and then there was Traveler magazine and they just used the same photographers. And the, the editor for Traveler magazine was always really kind of upset because the photographers weren't, sometimes we didn't get appropriate images for the magazine. You know, we didn't want to be a mini National Geographic. And um, yeah, I was fine to, you know, I, I really, sure, I would have loved to have worked for National Geographic. It was a couple of times I came, almost ended up working for them as a photo editor. But Traveler magazine was a small family. Our staff was about 20 and it was all positive. When you go up to a bigger, higher profile thing like National Geographic magazine, it starts to be there's like political nightmares. It's just sometimes it's not a fun place to work. And at Traveler magazine, we just loved what we did and we loved our product. I love that. So you're traveling along. Things are going great. Magazine sales are good. You've got a great staff. It feels like family. When is it that you realize that? this isn't going to last. Like things are moving to online. No one's buying magazines. When is the writing on the wall and when do you see it? Well, there was this guy from Adelaide who decided that National Geographic should be part of his Fox empire. (laughs) 
<laughs> and in hindsight, what happened to me leaving the magazine was that was leading up to that was budget cuts that people were making to make the spreadsheet look better for the Fox buyout. Right. That sucks, doesn't it? That really does. Yeah. <laughs> and now and now, you know, they handed it all over to Disney. And I still have some connections there, but it's just it's a nightmare over there. So, I mean, I know then it's a financial decision to say close a magazine, you know, to shut it down. But do you see that from the inside that, you know, the sales aren't there or that there's less and less magazines in the news agency or subscriptions are going down? Like, do you see that from the inside or are you fighting against it? Like you just you're blinded by the fact that you work there. Oh, no, no. We would try everything. Partially what happened to me as well was uh, my longtime editor retired. He was not well and, and he retired. And that's when things started to go awry. I mean, I don't want to talk bad about people. Um, he had his little corner of the world at National Geographic. And when he was taken out of that picture, there were other people more in power at National Geographic that were looking over in the corner and saying like, wait, what are those people? Why am I not in charge of that? <laughs> and that's what happened and it you know the whole family thing got wrapped into everything else and yeah but anyway at that time is that when things like workshops you know, are being presented and you're out there teaching workshops is that to try and you know to save the magazine or to look for another another stream of income no we started the workshops you know 10 years we ran the workshops for 10 or 12 years and that was just my editor wanting to have a connection to the readers of the magazine. And he knew that a large proportion of the readers were really into photography because we had this massively successful photo contest that we were running for years and years. I mean, we had years where we'd get, even before it was digital, we had 25,000 entries in the photo contest and it was free to enter the contest and everybody sent in prints or duplicate transparencies. And we had a contract photo editor that would spend the summer going through those pictures. And so clearly the readership of Traveler Magazine could relate to what they saw in the magazine. Where most readers look at National Geographic Magazine and they don't think, oh, I'm going to take a picture like that. That, that you know, it didn't work that way. And so... Sorry, did you say they think they will or they won't take a picture like that? They won't. I mean, I don't... There's a lot more people that can relate to the type of photography at Traveler Magazine and those people were our readers. I don't think that people... Sure, there's a lot of really accomplished photographers and, and people that dream of photographing for National Geographic magazine and they see themselves on that level, but you know, they're not, you know, it's (laughs) It's true. Yes. So really your readers were the perfect, the perfect client for your workshops. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So was that a big part of the business? For a few years, it added a fair bit to the bottom line. The best part of the business was the relationship with the advertisers. And if you could get somebody like Scottsdale Tourism to commit to buying a package that would be a page in every magazine next year and two online packages, you know, that's the kind of thing you tried to get. So there was another magazine at National Geographic. It was a fantastic magazine. It was called National Geographic Adventure. And it was kind of funny because it led to me having a lot of really unusual trips. Because as Adventure started, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Outside Magazine, but the editor that made Outside Magazine the great magazine it was, then he went to Men's Journal, and then he came to Adventure Magazine. And 
I used to joke about Adventure Magazine. How can you market a magazine to a demographic with no fixed address? I mean, this is a magazine for 25-year-olds, <laughs> right? And it was a tough, tough way to make money on an adventure magazine. And National Geographic thought that that's what they needed. Well, they started doing soft adventure, which equaled travel. So all of a sudden, you've got Traveler Magazine doing stories on national parks, and you've got Adventure Magazine doing stories on national parks. And that was a real kind of sibling rivalry. And we would lose advertisers to adventure because their audience was smaller. The circulation was lower. The ads were cheaper. And so somebody's like, oh, am I going to pay $40,000 for an ad in Traveler Magazine? Well, no, I can get it for $14,000 in Adventure Magazine. And, you know, my client will be happy. You know, that was the Wild West of advertising. So the most unusual stories that I had was times when my editor decided that he needed to tweak his friends at Adventure just a little bit and remind them that they didn't have the monopoly on adventure. The same way they were fighting into our travel territory, let's bite a little out of their adventure. <laughs> and so I came into work one day and he told me, he says, there's this writer I know, Bernice. And when she was 10 years old, she was hiking in the Alps and her dad fell into a crevasse. She was on the rope with the guide and her dad and her brother. So of course he was fine. They pulled him out, but she was kind of scared to be in the mountains. So the next day, she was 10 years old. Her dad went into Zermatt, hired a guide, and made her climb the Matterhorn. So as far as she knew at the time, she was the youngest person to climb the Matterhorn. So now 30 years later, she's turning 40 years old. She finds her guide in Zermatt. She went back there for a family reunion. And she wants, now he's 79 years old. He's still taking clients up the Matterhorn. And she wants, his name was Roni Interbenen. She wanted Roni to take her up the mountain on her 40th birthday. So he called me and he said, fly to Zermatt, meet Bernice. You're going to climb the Matterhorn. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's fine with me. And so I get to Zermatt and she meets me at the train. And she says, Dan, I have bad news. Roni fell off the mountain and died yesterday. Oh my God. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm really happy to be the tourist mountaineer. I mean, my friends, they can do the K2s and stuff like that, but I got a family at home and I'm trotting this well-trod path. I mean, I like adventure. I like to do crazy things, but there's a limit. And I thought, well, okay, what are we going to do? And so instead of the oldest guide, we found the guide had climbed the Matterhorn the most. He stopped counting at 800. And we went ahead and climbed the Matterhorn. It was really interesting on the summit day. This was still in the film times. And on the summit day, I climbed up. You start at 4 a.m. You climb to the summit. You're back down by 10 a.m. And I looked at my camera and my bag of film. And in that summit attempt, I had only shot like two rolls of film, oh, not wow. even two rolls of film. Oh. And I thought, oh, I, up until then, I didn't think I was scared. But clearly something was going on in my head. You know, Were you scared because you hadn't shot enough or you, you were actually scared so you didn't shoot enough? I was scared, so I didn't shoot enough. You know, the alpine climbing is, in America, you, you climb and you go up the rope and then you have somebody come up behind you and you're always attached to the wall. And the alpine climbing, you like your guide clips a rope between you and he's like, go. <laughs> and you, you get to this place when you're coming down and you think, surely he's going to set up a rappel. 
and you'll take the rope down. And he just points down a mountain. He's like, walk, what are you talking about? <laughs> and the guides in Zermatt, they have a saying. They say that you don't need more than 12 square inches under your feet on the sidewalk in Zermatt. Why do you need more than that up on the mountain? <laughs> now, you know, on the edge of those 12 inches, it's a 3,000-foot drop, but that's okay. <laughs> but I got what I needed. and Really? You got what you needed, for, what did you say, from two or three rolls? Well, it was two rolls of film, but, you know, half the time we were in the dark, you couldn't even take pictures. And the pictures that end up in the story, it's going to be the warm-up climbs before you do the summit, the pictures of the town, you know, hiking all over the Alps. It, it, so I just needed, like, two pictures of the of the summit. Right. As a photographer covering a story like that, and we'll go back into this fight between you and the other magazine, but have you got instruction of what you need to shoot to make this a story, or you just know that as a photographer with your experience? You just know that. And having put together so many stories and realizing what you need, I mean, you can put it into simple terms. And way back when I was a newspaper photographer, you would say you need your establishing shot, you need your close-ups, you need your wide angle, you know, your portraits, and you try to shoot a variety. The simplest way to think about it is to make sure that people's heads in the pictures are not the same size. <laughs> but what do you mean? Because of the view? You need a variety. We haven't talked a lot about the business side of things with Dan yet. But we're going to get to that in just a minute. And when you do hear Dan starting to talk about establishing himself as a commercial photographer in the current environment, one of the things he's going to be trying to do is establish himself as the go-to photographer in his niche and to create a brand about what he does. And that's exactly what today's sponsor can help you with. I'm talking about USB Memory Direct. They create custom USBs that honestly can match whatever you can dream up. <laughs> These things really are amazing. You have to see them to believe them. If you go to their website, you'll see USBs in the designs of stiletto shoes, lizards, slurpees, robots, and avocado. <laughs> Seriously, if you can dream it, they can make it. And when you think of USBs like I used to, I think of a rectangle USB with a logo on it. These are so much more. And if you're thinking, well, as a photographer, why, why would I go to supplying USBs to my clients if perhaps you're using online digital delivery? And there's a couple of great reasons why you need to consider using USBs or handing out USBs to your clients after a shoot. I mean, the first thing is we as a collective are always preaching to each other how important it is to be supplying our clients with something tangible, something they can touch. Wall art, albums, acrylic blocks, canvases. Like we, <laughs> we preach this week in, week out. We should be supplying our clients with something tangible. So why would we be giving them a link to a digital download that's only going to be available for a certain amount of time when we have the perfect chance to give them something beautiful, something branded, something that reminds them of us and the experience they had with us every time they take it out of the drawer. And they may not take it out of the drawer that often, but anytime they do, they see your brand, they see your logo, they see your design, whatever you've come up with for your USB drive, and they think of you. And you've probably heard the statistic that 
On average, it takes five to seven impressions for people to remember you and your brand. So just think how easy it is to actually place your brand in the hands of your clients. Anytime they rummage through that drawer next to their computer where they have the USB drives, there's yours. And it looks different to every other USB drive. Not only does it look different, it's branded with your logo, in your colors, with your design, and they think about you, the photos you created, and the experience that you delivered when you work with them. That's the beauty of supplying a USB drive as opposed to giving a link to an online gallery. I'd love for you to go and check out USB Memory Direct, and you'll even see one of my past guests from the podcast, Tony Hoffer, who has one of his designs on their website. It's a, it's a quirky looking H for Hoffer in a, in a lime green that looks nothing like a USB that you've ever seen. And in that article, which I'll link to in the show notes, he says that his clients absolutely love and respond to the simple but beautifully designed USB drive that he gives to each of them. So go and check out USB Memory Direct. You can find them at usbmemorydirect.com. And if you use the code FLASH15, all one word, FLASH15, you can save 15% off your very first order. You try to shoot a variety. The simplest way to think about it is to make sure that people's heads in the pictures are not the same size. <laughs> all right, okay, so you don't want to be shooting the same focal length from the same distance for every portrait. Yeah, exactly. So if you only have one lens, then you're going to shoot some pictures from a foot away. You're going to shoot some pictures from across the street. You know, you just really need to be sure to mix up those angles of view. And I think the way that most of us do that is to shoot some pictures with a wide angle lens, shoot some pictures with a telephoto lens. The really successful photographers, those photographers that tell you, oh, I just shoot everything with a 50 millimeter lens, they're hyper aware of how they're framing the pictures. Right. So what you said there, was that something that that you learn as a newspaper photographer or working with a magazine that you must have heads at different sizes? I learned that from having a photographer would go on assignment and they would turn in 150 rolls of film and, or in the time of digital, let's say it's 10,000 photos. So then I go through those 10 or 12,000 photos and I have to edit it down to 30 that I'm going to show to the staff or maybe 25. And then you take those photos, you put them all in the system and then the designer works with them and you see what the designer has to do. And so that's more about a magazine. The fact that I only get eight pictures and if I'm going to use one two page spread, then I got to throw four of these other pictures away. And so with the different size heads, how does that play into it? If they're all the same, then you just don't have enough variety. Yeah, that probably came from my editor because when we would go look at the layouts, he didn't have a lot of output until we, a lot of input until we got, what we thought was going to be the magazine spread on the wall. And then we would look at it for days and days. And if there was a picture, a full page shot of somebody, oh, well, let's say it's it's a, a waitress presenting a plate of this amazing food and her head fills one eighth of the photograph. And on the adjacent page, there's a full frame face, but we're only running it less than a quarter inch. And he would point at that and he's like, those two people are the same size. You need to take that full face picture, blow that one up to the full page and take that overall picture and make it small. It makes a more interesting layout. Okay. So you're now trying to make the layouts interesting like a photographer would make a photo interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. 
just on this same topic, so what are some other things that you, when you're working with photographers where you would say to them, hey, you know, you need to have different size heads in these photos. You've shot with the same focal length and the same distance every time. I imagine that doesn't happen too often if they're shooting for the magazine you worked with. But was there any other things that you said to the guys, the photographers, you need to do this? I have a pet peeve about what I call the wide angle disease. And when it became a focal length war, first Nikon made the 20 to 35 lens, then Canon had a 20 to 35. Then Canon made the 17 to 35, and then Nikon made the 17 to 35, and then they made the 16 to 35. And as I was looking through the photographer's pictures, I could see that they would come into the scene with that lens on their camera. And I would watch as they took each picture, and I could imagine they were thinking, well, if a little bit is good, more is even better. And they would just zoom out and would completely destroy the composition. And I would be screaming at my little monitor, my slide projector, looking at the pictures like, don't do it, don't do it, don't zoom out. (laughs) So I was so happy that the early days of digital photography did not have full frame sensors because we essentially took away that ultra wide angle that the photographers loved to shoot. One photographer who worked for us a lot, John Koenig, and he would do almost everything with one lens. And he would say, when I'm in the field and I'm shooting with a wide angle lens, I think I'm creating gold. When I get back and look at the pictures, it's just all shite. (laughs) And it was because wide angle lenses are too easy to make look different from what we see with our eyes. And so you don't use your brain to make an interesting composition. It goes back to the conversation about the Roloflex or my medium format Fuji camera that I only have one lens for. I do not have the chance to zoom out, ruin the composition, because I'm thinking, oh, this is only going to happen once. I got to make sure I get it all in. Right. So you're working harder for those shots. Let me take you back also to the editing. So you're there at work. A photographer walks in. They give you, I'm guessing, a USB or even the compact flashcards, and there's 10,000 images. You must be damn good at editing. Are you looking for the best shots or deleting the bad shots? Um, So they would send us a hard drive, and then you you would plug the hard drive in. I would tell people that I never delete a photo. Because the hard drive space, the pictures were already there. I didn't need to save space. And I wanted to be in a positive mindset. So literally, the way I did it with film, the way I do it with digital, is I look at the pictures full screen, one at a time. I hit the next button so that I'm flying through the pictures as fast as I can go from one to the next. And if I see something that slightly interests me, I hit one. And that gives it a star, right? Mm -hmm. This is using photo mechanic. Well, this was with Aperture, Lightroom, Photo Me- I have my Photo Mechanic programmed to work that way. Lightroom will almost work that fast now. But in order to go from one picture to the next full frame, yeah, it was for a long time we couldn't do that. I can't look at a grid of pictures and say, oh, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one. So let's say I have 10,000 photos. And after I've done that exercise and I gave the one stars, then I've got 3,500 photos left or maybe 4,000. Then I wait a day or whatever if I'm not in a hurry. I come back. I only look at the one stars. I go up to two stars. Then I look at the two stars. You know, Now we're 500 photos. Then we go to three stars. Then we're down to 100 photos. 
And I'm always afraid I'm going to run out of stars. So I never go to five stars. <laughs> when I go to four stars, I start demoting stuff back down to three. <laughs> I love it. But we always, I refer to that as hierarchical editing, that I need to be able to have a tool that shows me three or more stars, four or more stars. So let's say that all my four star photos, it's 30 pictures. I showed it to the staff of the magazine. And then we go to layout and the designer comes to me and she says, hey, this little girl blowing bubbles in Nara, Japan is really fantastic. But when I go two page spread on it, she's right in the middle of the gutter and I can't work around it. Can you show me the three pictures right before that one? And if I hadn't, if I couldn't back out like five stars, four, three, two, I can instantly, I'm like, yeah, here you go. Here's the four photos right before it. Let's choose this one. And you might choose a photo that essentially was similar, but there was some slight difference. Yes. Okay. So you, so really you are making it as easy and hard as possible for the layout designer as possible. You're trying to limit their choices, but there is still a choice there if they need it. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole Traveler magazine. It was very collaborative. No designer was going to go off with those pictures and come back and say, this is my work. They would come back to me, to the photo editor first. They say, hey, do you like what I did? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I think so. Um, try this or, oh, I love it. I never would have thought to do that. Fantastic. I mean, a lot of times that's what happened. <laughs> so good. Let me take you back to Zermatt and the Matterhorn. You come back to the office at Nat Geo Traveler. You've got your photos there. And what happens? Do you publish this story in competition with the Adventure Magazine? This will take you into the world of magazines. We get back. I show the pictures. One of the higher up editors said, this is not a story for our magazine. It's too creepy. Nobody's going to do that. It's, it, that's terrible what happened to you. We can't tell the story. Write a story. Write a puff piece about Zermatt. So then that's what the writer did. They read the puff piece about Zermatt. They're like, this is boring. Who cares? And they put it on the shelf for two and a half years. <laughs> So we're having a conversation about how the magazine looks and what we've done with the magazine. And we had a writer come in with a really compelling story that just hit everybody right in the forehead. And I remember the senior staff, about five of us, the editor took us out to dinner and he said, you know what, where can we go differently with the magazine? He says, this particular story that so-and-so wrote, really, I wanted to read it all the way to the end. It was literary. It wasn't just about, I stayed here and I ate this. We need more stories. We need to find stories like that. And I sheepishly put my hand up and I said, well, you know, you remember two and a half years ago, what happened to Bernice and I on the mountain? And they just went, oh, yeah, you're right. I think we'll publish that story. <laughs> two and a half years later. <laughs> yeah. But even if somebody went in the field, they were shooting for the next year. It would never have appeared in the magazine sooner than a year before they shot it. And usually a year and a half. So it's not as bad as it sounds. So what is it What is it that they knocked back? What was too dark? Was it the fact that that, that initial guide died the day before you got there? Because, I mean, you still had a, a great climb, a great experience. You had this other guide. You had the story of Bernice. Like, why didn't they like it? Yeah, the whole story had to include the fact that somebody fell off the mountain and died. And they felt that that wasn't, that wasn't for our audience. Right. So then... I told you that I ride my bike a lot and I would commute to work every day for like, no matter what. And one day I was riding into work and it was in November 
and it was zero degrees centigrade, so 32. It was raining. I pulled up to a stoplight, soaked like a wet rat. And Bernice, the writer that I climbed the Matterhorn with, walked across the crosswalk with my editor. And he looked at me and he said, oh, Dan, you like cold weather. Bernice, tell him what you just told me. And she said, well, I told him that there's a trip that you can ski the last degree to the North Pole. And the Russians drop you off at 80 degrees north latitude with a helicopter and you ski for 10 days and you ski to the North Pole. And so then the editor looked at Bernice and he looked at me and he's like, you're going to go with her. (laughs) And I thought, okay. (laughs) And I had just finished reading a book about Antarctic explorers by a guy called Apsley Cherry Gerard. And the name of his book was The Worst Journey in the World. (laughs) And it was about this terrible, about the Scott expedition, you know, how horrible that ended up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we, we ski to the North Pole. And as I was, then I had switched to digital and this'll take you way back. I'd like, I can't take a computer. I can't download photos. I can't bring a solar panel. How am I going to power my battery, my cameras? And so the cameras I ran off of lithium AA batteries, which was inside my jacket with a wire connecting to the camera. And then I had memory cards. And at that time, each memory card would shoot. I could fit about 500 pictures on a memory card. and. About halfway through, well, at the end of the first day, I looked at my camera and I had made like a hundred pictures and my mind went back to the Matterhorn. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be that guy again that just shot like, you know, 70 pictures on the ascent of the Matterhorn. No matter what happens, I'm going to take, I'm going to fill a card every day, if not more. And, you know, we're pulling sleds, we're skiing, we're skiing 10 miles a day. You, you would ski 10 miles you would wake up in the morning and find out that you drifted three miles backwards because the ice is moving, you know, and we had what we call negative drift. But I was taking pictures of my feet, of this, the clouds, you know, and there's really nothing to photograph up there, I had to say. But that was, that was like the trip of a lifetime, the best winter camping trip you could ever make. And that experience of being scared or being preoccupied is probably a better word than being scared, but you're there to take pictures. So that's what you've got to keep doing. Yeah. It sounds like such an incredible life as a photographer so far. I'm sure there's many more years to come. I want to ask one more quick thing before you share where people can see more of your work, Dan. And that's, you know, you've talked about the writers and the writing that accompanies the articles or that makes the articles, you know, to accompany the photography. Do the writers always go with the photographer to experience the story or do you come back and relay what happened and have them write it? At National Geographic, we did not like to have the writers traveling with the photographer, but we would like them to be there in the same time frame. So let's say if the writer had suggested the idea, maybe they would go first and the photographer would time themselves to get there for the last two or three days of the writer's trip. They sit down, they have a nice meal, they talk about what were done, what they could do, share contacts, things like that. If the idea came from the photographer, maybe the photographer goes first. Um, So we want them to be doing the story in the same arena, but not necessarily traveling together. And, you know, the photographer's time is just so different because you're up before sunrise and, you know, you're taking pictures when everybody's eating dinner and the writers, they don't follow our schedule. Obviously, when you're climbing the Matterhorn, you're skiing to the North Pole. Well, you've got to travel together because, you know, it costs a lot of money to get you there. Yes. 
So you were saying that in most cases, the writer won't be accompanying the photographer, but in this case, like a trip like the Matterhorn, then it makes sense for you guys to go together because of the cost. Yeah, because you've got to hire guides and stuff like that. Or if it's a, you know, if it's a place in the middle of nowhere, but if it's in a city or, or even something moderately, you might go there near the same time. But a lot of times they didn't even go at the same time. But there's lots of close communication between the writer and the photographer about what's going on. And do you have any say about what goes into the article by the writer? I wanted the word editors to respect my opinion about the photographs and the design. And I was not going to make too many suggestions about what I thought they should do because that was their sandbox. I had mine. I also did not feel, as the years went on, I felt more like I could have a conversation with the text editors about hey, you know, I read this story. I didn't quite get that middle part. It's a little, it seems a little bit muddy. And then as we became more colleagues, uh, we had a lot of back and forth about, hey, you know, they would come to me with a manuscript to say, hey, what do you think about this? I'm not quite sure. And, and we got to trust each other. And so that, you know, it goes back to that whole thing about the size of the staff and the product we were putting out. I just loved it. It was such a collaborative effort. Dan, I could listen to you tell these stories all day, and, and I mean that sincerely. I know. So it sounds like such an amazing time. I cannot get the picture of the secret life of Walter Mitty out of my head from the minute I started talking to you right up until now. Yeah. Uh, for the listener who hasn't seen that movie, go and see it. Go and watch it. Uh, download it. Uh, stream it. Whatever you do to watch those movies. Uh, it's fantastic. Dan, where's the best place for the listener to learn more about you, see some of your work, see your portfolio? The best pictures I uh, are to go look on Instagram. I don't really keep up with Instagram a lot, but there's a year's worth of stuff on there that if they just go and they scroll back, that's really cool stuff. My website, I think that it's interesting, but it's desperately in need of a redo. The website was built of me trying to be a photographer and a creative director at the same time. If you look at my website, you'll see that I'm trying to say like I do these packages, putting things together for clients. It turns out the world doesn't really want that. They don't understand. It's like, oh, are you a photographer? Or are you a creative director? You know, which are you? And so I need to redo that. And then I also need to build a new, um, so danwestergren.com. There's a lot of cool stuff on there, but it's hard. If people go to a magazine place called Issue, I-S-S-U-U, and then they type in my name, there's my latest 2020 print portfolio is expressed there. That's what I'm proudest of my work, but all that stuff is on Instagram. Um, Let me tell you really quickly, and you can cut out whatever you can't fit on here. The weird, strange place I find myself right now. So in the commercial real estate world, I met a guy that they used to have a virtual bus tour. I mean, a bus tour. So they would get 10 buses with 700 real estate professionals who would drive through the Washington, D.C. area to learn about where they could invest, where their clients could get you know, their offices, all this kind of stuff. Well, with COVID, you can't do that. And so I convinced them that I could produce three 45-minute videos of a virtual bus tour. And so that's what I spent the month of September and October doing. And it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> You know, I really feel for you. I see you we're talking on Zoom. I had to do, I conducted 25 
cameo interviews with real estate experts to fit into there. I had bus captains who we would go onto the roof of a parking garage and they would narrate, you know, I'm driving around in a convertible with a camera on a gimbal to get video of all of these real estate things. But all of a sudden I realized these people were in charge of like $500 million projects. I need to learn how to take pictures for these people. Yes. You know, how can I shoot pictures that I don't have to leave home? And, you know, the other thing is I'm listening to your photographers talk about the Facebook ads. And certainly if people look at any of my photographs, they say, oh, well, Dan could do this family portraits and stuff. I've, I've actually photographed more than 100 weddings in my life. But so right now, that's where my efforts are going. I, I'm supposed to Wednesday photograph for a really high end architect, a house that he built out of shipping containers. And that was a really good get for me because he was a longtime friend and he has this beautiful house that it's it's like his house is hanging off a cliff in the center of Washington, D.C. It's hanging from these steel cables counterbalanced by 6,000 pound pails of rocks. And it's been photographed so many times, but nobody ever had a good picture of the back of his house. So I kept waiting till either early spring or late fall where you could see his house through the trees. And I called him up the last two years, every time spring or fall came, I was like, you know, off in Greenland or something. So I called him up and said, Travis, hey, you know what? You don't have a good picture of the back of your house. Let me come and take one. And so I did. And he knew he needed a good picture of the back of his house. And I knew through following him that he'd finished this shipping container house. And when I was leaving his house, I said, by the way, you know, I know you didn't have that house photographed yet. And I would love to do it. And I know that, you know, that I'm not like Mr. Architectural Photographer, but I showed you my stuff. I'd love to work with you, even if you don't have money. And so then a week later, he sent me an email and he said, well, you know, how much does it cost? And I said, well, you know, I want to do this. And so then I decided to not say I'd do it for nothing. I said, in a perfect world, if you had a budget, I would want $2,000 a day and $75 per picture for post-processing or whatever. And then I didn't hear anything for like three weeks. And then on Saturday, he calls. He's like, yeah, let's go. I need pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And so it's like, but it's like one picture. Like, what did I do the rest of the month? You know, yeah, that, yeah. it's that's I'm learning. I'm just how I think. And part of the reason I listen to photo is you just have to keep beating your head against the wall, calling people on the phone, sending emails. It It never ends. That's true. It doesn't. And for so many years, I was insulated from that because I always had a paycheck and I could I could be operating in that high end of the photography world and not have to have a business out of it. And so now, you know, we're making a business out of it. Yeah, I'm out. I totally hear you. It's the same for all of us. Let me ask you or finish with this one last question. Fast forward 12 months from now, in a perfect world, what will you be doing photographically and for an income? In 12 months, I'm scheduled... <laughs> To go to Franz Josef Land in the Russian Arctic on a ship as a photographic expert. <laughs> Unreal. I am hoping to be able to make that trip, but I don't know if I will. In order to keep paying the mortgage, I'm hoping that these few connections with commercial real estate people will lead to more and more things. Um, yeah, that's where I'm going to put my effort. You know, people would be hiring me to take pictures of the atrium on the top of their 20-story 
office building that they just finished constructing and now they need real photos because they can't use the renderings anymore. Love it. I love it. That's my dream. Fantastic. Dan, I said it earlier, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved chatting to you. I'll add links to all the places that you mentioned earlier so, so the listener can go and check out your work. And I would urge you, the listener, to check out Dan's Instagram feed. It is, uh, I think the only way to describe it is that the true feed of a hipster photographer but from a real photographer like any hipster would be proud to have this as their feed on instagram it's fantastic dan again massive thanks for coming on and uh oh it's so great to talk to you andrew (laughs) wishing you and your family a merry christmas hey do me a favor so i sent you a link it was a bitly little url that goes straight to that portfolio yes be sure to put that there that's the best look at what i what i think i do absolutely i've got that right here Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan Westergren. If you want to see more from Dan, and I urge you to check out his work, I've got links to anything and everything that he mentioned in today's show notes, and you can find them this week at photobizx.com forward slash TPX28. You'll see examples of his beautiful work on that page, plus links to his portfolio that he mentioned there at the end of the interview. Dan, if you're listening, again, thank you so much for coming on, sharing everything you did. I'm looking forward to following along and seeing how your business progresses over the next year or two. And for you, the listener, I genuinely hope you got a ton from what Dan had to share. If you have any follow-up questions for him, post them in the comments area of the show notes. Or if you are a premium member, you can easily reach Dan inside the members Facebook group. If you just want to say thanks for coming on the show, if you've got an additional question to ask him about working as a travel photographer for Nat Geo or anything else that we covered in today's episode. Again, I want to say a massive thanks to USB Memory Direct for sponsoring today's episode. Please go and check out their website if you are thinking at all of delivering something special something unique to your clients in the form of a usb drive and you want to be giving something more than a generic usb you might pick up from amazon a department store or something ordinary that most photographers are delivering usbmemorydirect.com is where you can find them go and check them out And if you are listening to this episode as it goes live, I hope you had a fantastic Christmas. I hope you're enjoying some holiday downtime with your family and loved ones. And I want to wish you a happy new year. Here's hoping that 2021 brings you success, adventure, laughter, fun, love, and plenty of great experiences. Happy new year. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.